Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go indeed. Buongiorno. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast. For another episode. For another episode with Two Tongues what? coming at you, both of us this time around. What number are we at now? Uh, season 2, episode 15, maybe? Something like that? All right. Yeah, we had almost 100 episodes in season 1. Fucking A. So, 115. All right. Somewhere <coughs> in that area. Jessica asked me the other day um, how many hours of podcasts we've done, yeah. and I have no idea. But if I had to do the math, just real basic uh, arithmetic here, I'm going to say, if we, uh, saying, assuming we have the um, f- 115 episodes that I just said, 115 times, what do you think, maybe like two hours? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, hundreds of hours of audio uh, on the internet, and uh, that reminds me of... Um, that episode of Joe Rogan's podcast where he had the guy on talking about the deep fake videos oh, yeah. and how when people have now the software is so good that for someone like Joe who's got thousands of hours, tens yeah. of thousands of hours, right? They can make they can they can make a computer say in Joe Rogan voice anything they want, and it's almost impossible to tell the difference between a real Joe Rogan quote and a made up one. That is weird as hell. Um, I think. We we probably have enough for them to be able to make some pretty convincing. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, but I mean, I've said a bunch of shit that I would probably get in trouble for anyways. They don't have to make something. Mm. So, but they could. They could make something. So any creative fans want to throw together some nonsense uh, uh, dialogue? If you've got the technology, we'd like to. We'd like to see that. Yeah, I'd, I'd listen to that. Just don't make me say anything too terrible. You know, make them say terrible. Make things. it funny. <laughs> I don't really care though. So what's up, man? Um, I feel like shit. That's what's up. Yes. I don't. I woke up yesterday morning and my throat was sore. My throat's not really sore anymore, but uh, my nose is still. I'm just all congested mm. and got a headache. It's like sinus shit, you mm. know. Well, I hope it's not uh, what was going around here not long ago. There was a lot of congestion going around going around here, um, and also some other virus that's been going around that causes like severe stomach pain. Oh, I've heard about that going around recently. Yeah. Both my both my girls had it. Yeah, and I felt like such a dick because uh, because my older daughter she said in the morning uh, on Friday that she her stomach hurt and she did she asked if she could stay home from school, and I I got a, such a weak spot for my girls. Uh, I, my instinct was like, okay, okay, yeah, go, yeah. go lay down, and my wife's like, no, yeah, she's yeah. just like, no. You, you know, go to school, and if and if you uh, still feel bad. Uh, Tell your teacher. Tell the nurse. Then I get a call at like one o'clock. Come pick up your daughter. So yeah, that's what happened. Yeah, I would. I was 
always fake and sick when I was a kid, man. Like, just <laughs> constantly. How often did it work? Pretty frequently. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that my mom probably knew that I wasn't really sick, that I just didn't want to go to school, but I, I still didn't get, I, I got to not go, so. You think it was the act, it was the acting skills that sold you, or do you think it was, uh, did, you, did you go, you know, like. I think my mom just didn't want to, like, argue with me, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I understand. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, definitely a lot of fake and sick. I wasn't, like, Ferris Buellering, you know, it's not like I was, uh, like putting a light bulb against my head to pretend I had a fever or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at when I said, you know. Yeah, no, it was just more like, I, I don't feel good. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. Can I not go to school? <laughs> um, and then I just stopped asking and st- started just skipping school. Yeah. That's so, it's funny you bring that up. Um, I was thinking about that while you were talking. Like, I uh, I fixed sick a time or two, but not like a whole bunch. Yeah. Um, but I don't think my parents, like, would let me get away with it. Uh I don't know, man. I was mostly a good kid. But then I asked myself if I ever skipped. And I can't say that I can remember ever leaving school early or skipping class. Uh, except, maybe, maybe, like, in college, of course, you know. Sure. But it doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Um, You're allowed to, yeah. But I do remember one time when I was, like, 16 that I uh, I said to, to my parents I was staying over at somebody's house. And I, I wasn't. I was going to my girlfriend's house uh-huh. and staying over there. Yeah. So that I could have sex with her, yeah. And I felt guilty about it because I'm like, uh, you know, I don't know, man. Lying to your mom, bold face to her face. That's a that's that's that just doesn't feel good, man. It doesn't feel good, especially when you're a mama's boy like me. It's I, not it's not easy to do. Yeah, I didn't have as many scruples as you did about <laughs> that sort of thing. I mean, you know, now I wouldn't want to lie, uh, but back then it was just like. Um, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna do what I want to do, and if I have to tell a little white lie, then I don't really feel bad about that. It's funny. It's funny because it's like there's got to be sufficient motivation to get over the the lie, the sin, the guilt, and that's the uh, the difference between you and I. I feel that guilt like acutely. Yeah. You do not. Not all the time. It's a personality. It's a personality difference, you know. Uh, but but when I was 16 years old, the prospect of be, being able to have sex with my girlfriend, um, you know, and enough. have that freedom to just go and do that. Like we don't have to sneak around; we could just do it. That was that was when you're 16 years got old, you man. That got me over the hump. Yeah, <laughs> literally and no, figuratively. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now another thing that made me not, fe- especially with like skipping school, is that I just thought it was stupid. You know, like um, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I did. I was like. I guess I guess that I could have learned valuable things at school, uh, and I did learn some valuable things at school. But for the most part, I just felt like this is some fucking place that I have to go to, yeah. you know. Um, so I just didn't feel bad about it at all. Yeah, we we said this before, but I, you know, like critiquing public schools and how they're structured and all that. Um, but I like the ancient Greek model. I think if I if I would have been forced to discipline myself physically which is what they did with the greek boys your first like 10 they years of education greek boys too yeah yeah you see made that <laughs> joke before too but but uh but yeah man they for like the first stretch of their education there was very little academic learning it was following orders exercising learning how to fight how to run how to how to yeah. wrestle all that sort of thing um that's so important for young boys man and I did yeah. not get that I would have loved that loved it yeah and then you would have had at the end of that you would have had the discipline that you needed to actually tackle the academic stuff yeah later you know what I mean? later yeah yeah for sure um 
I definitely think, I mean, we talked about this before, the education system in America is just totally fucked. Um, but you talking about, us talking about education and then you saying the thing about Greek boys and me making that joke makes me think of this uh, don't say gay bill. Yeah. You heard about that? I heard about it, but I didn't read into it into it really so I'm not sure what the fuck's going what it's all about so it's this bill that got signed into law in Florida um where public school teachers in the grades of kindergarten from third grade can't teach kids about sexuality um I'm not a huge fan of legislation and laws and shit like that but I don't know I'm okay with that one like, you know, I, I think it's sad that we even have to make a law to tell people that that's inappropriate, that you, your fucking stupid ass, crazy, progressive lifestyle or beliefs or whatever that you can't, you shouldn't be forcing those onto fucking kindergartners, dude. Why in the fuck would you want to? Five-year-olds. Like, what kind of, it's not like you're going to have a... F- like a uh, a reciprocal conversation about yeah. a topic like that with a kindergartner. Are you fucking kidding me? Why why would you even what in the fuck are you trying to gain with that? I mean, I have some theories, but I don't know. I mean, we're getting into conspiracy territory. Well, we probably should we probably should get into Sh- conspiracy. Shouldn't? We should. Yeah. Oh, okay. We should. We should explore it. Um like I don't know, man. My objections to that are really obvious. So it's not, I'm not going to be adding anything to this conversation, but it's, it's that a, a kid that age has not, doesn't have the capacity to even understand sexuality because it hasn't blossomed in their, in their, their brains aren't developed to that point. The hormones don't exist in their body. They don't have any reference. They can't understand that. So why would you, would you want to say something to them about it? They're not even capable of learning. It's like, it's such an abstract thing. It, it's not going to... Unless unless you're planting a seed to to manipulate them later on, I don't understand why you would even. That's what my conspiracy. That's where I like conspiracy. Conspiracy territory. That's what I think is going on. Legitimately, I think that it's like grooming, you know. Uh, And I think that a lot of these progressive idiot teachers and like parents who are outraged about this bill, they don't necessarily. They're not trying to groom kids. They're just trying to be politically correct. They're just, like, trying to make the world better for gay people and trans people and Mm. whatever the fuck. Mm. Um, But I kind of believe that the end goal of this for a certain class of people is the sexualization of children. And not even necessarily the sexualization of children, but I think that that's a big part of it. But treating children as, like... I don't know, autonomous, like adults, you know, like they can choose. And I think that this is kind of a part of what's going on with like the trans kids thing. You know, Mm -hmm. if they can make that choice, if you can make, if I can make the choice that I'm a a, a girl and not a boy, why can't I make the choice to have sex with you? You know, Jesus Christ, man. Well, I mean, the argument against that, the most obvious argument against that is that a a kid's brain is not developed. So when you say that a kid, when not you, but when somebody suggests that a kid can make a choice um, of any of any kind, by the way, let alone let alone something that significant, 
uh, until the, you know, prior to the, their brain being fully developed, which doesn't happen until like your mid to late 20s. 24, 25. Uh, that's the argument. It's like, look, you, you can't make a choice. That's why your mom and dad have to tell you to stop eating candy. Otherwise, you're going to eat it until you're sick because, because that's, how, that's how children are. They're much more like animals than like adult human beings in the sense that they follow their instincts and, and they don't have much else going on because their brain fucking infrastructure is not there. Yeah. And you're going to, and that's the other thing, man. Like if I was a, if I was a, a teacher of like young elementary school kids and I were gay or trans or whatever, whatever <coughs> it is, I'm trying to understand in what, in what context, in what capacity, for what reason I would ever bring it up. I would ever want to, to bring it up to somebody who who cannot understand. Yeah. What, who are you trying to convince that these kids can understand? I, I don't... It's mind-boggling. Like, the fact that people think that there is a, a decent argument for their position. There is no decent argument for your position. To any... To the, I think... Luckily for us, I think the vast majority of Americans hear this shit and they're like, what are you fucking talking about? Um, but, you know, like everything, you've got a extremely vocal minority who makes everyone feel like they're a bigot, you know? Um, but I think that, I do think that that shit is kind of, people are getting tired of that shit. Like the general public, I think. I hope so. Yeah. Because that's, I mean... Like, the only thing that comes to my mind from, like, a political perspective or a social engineering perspective that makes any sense surrounding this is the idea that if you can normalize, um, if you can normal like, <clears throat> like with gender identity, for instance, we're, we're accustomed to the structure of male and female, granted, on both, both of which fall on a spectrum, and maybe that spectrum is even one spectrum, you know, that, that kind of thing, um, but if we normalize the idea that people don't fall in a binary, which is, you know, I, I don't even like using that language, um, but, but that there are other possible identities that fall on the spectrum, and we, we make that a real thing by, by talking about it, by, uh, you know, by talking about it as though it's normal to kids who grow up their whole lives hearing, hearing that, mm -hmm. that that's the angle. That, that's the angle. You know, it's like, and, and to some degree it makes sense because I think about how in my own youth how homosexuality was viewed in, in the public before it became pop culture pop, pop culturally acceptable and pushed like I remember when Will and Grace first appeared yeah. on television and there was a lot of people that were weirded out by that like oh we're gonna watch a sitcom and the and the, and the, the main characters are a couple of gay guys are you kidding yeah. um and then people realized you know that's a funny show that man. was a funny and, show. Uh, so they brought it back and it was all anti-trump oh they i didn't know like they brought a, it back yeah, they brought it in, it, i think maybe just one season but oh. it was just super, it was it was gay i mean you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so so maybe that's that's kind of the idea it's like you introduce it you make it commonplace and then people won't think it's so weird and if you're one of those kids that grows up to be gay or grows up to be transgendered or something that you you won't be you won't be facing that's the type of criticism and rejection you know what i mean maybe yeah. that's that's at least that's what they're playing on with the with the sympathetic liberal you know moms and dads yeah i think it's uh even with the kids the kid stuff i think it's um what's the word i'm looking for 
I, I don't know, just a like a manifestation of this obsession with equality, you know? Mm. Now we're extending that to kids. Oh, Jesus. You know, the kids are... Kid, children are just as equal as adults are. You know, they, they can do everything that we can mm. do, um, which that, is fucking that, insane. That's an interesting way of framing it because that resonates with me. Yeah. This, whole, this whole thing, drive for equality, even the language changed to equity now. It's like, no, what, what we're getting at is everybody has to be the same. Yeah. Everybody has to be identical. That's the goal now. It's not just equality. Now it's we need to be identical. And that's, it's an obsession with, with um, equality. It's, a, it's an obsession with, what would you say? I don't know. I would say that it's um, an obsession with impossibility. It's never going to happen. I mean. Yeah, it's, it seems to be an obsession with the idea of differences, right? Because that's what, differences is where hierarchies come from. Mm-hmm. Differences is where, you know, patriarchy comes from all these all these words it's like what we want to do is get rid of differences that's the anti-racism that's the equity that's the uh the transgender uh, you know th- w- there's an obsession with getting rid of our differences and i don't that there's like a psychological explanation there that's that affects the culture and that's very interesting to me and i don't understand it at all what is driving that um i think I think for the vast majority of people, it's just um, they heard some rhetoric and it kind of – because it kind of does make sense on some stupid level if you don't think about it at all. Mm. It's like, yeah, it would be nice if everyone was equal, Mm. you know. But then you think about that and it's like, okay, how do you get to that Mm. point? And the harder you try to get to that point, the more you're going to end up doing terrible things, you know, to to flatten the curve for everybody. Um, Yeah. It's just not good. Um, yeah, I think this this image pops in my head from years ago from John Stossel. He was talking about, I think it, I don't know if I can't remember the context, but it was like a chart of um, of uh, average income, and um, he, he, they were making the same point about um, the rich people get richer, and you know they say the poor people get poorer, but the truth is the poor people get richer too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rich people get you know, the, the difference between the rich and the poor just keeps getting larger, and that, that's what people point to. And, um, and he was like, look, experiments to, to fix that problem don't ever bring the poor people up to the level of the rich people to yeah. make you equal. What happens is the rich people get dragged down to the level of, of the poor people. That's how they achieve equality. Mm-hmm. It's never, ever, ever, ever happened from a top-down approach where they can bring the poor people up to the level of the rich people. Not even a meeting-in-the-middle situation. Yeah. In practice, it drags the rich people down to the level of the poor people. Yeah. And if you think that income redistribution and taxing the rich and all that sort of thing, if you think that that's like reasonable and baby steps and doesn't encroach on that um, possibility of dragging you know, the rich people down to the level of the poor people, you're a fool. Yeah. That's the first step in a process that always leads to that level of economic destruction. Yep. You know? I think, I mean, like all the stuff that you were just talking about, it's Marxism, you know? Like there, it's just, uh, you know, back when the Soviets took over, it was all about 
you know, like economy and class and things like that. But yep. it's just become they they found a new a few new weapons: race, sexuality, gender, gender yeah. Um, and it's just all of that stuff. It's that we need to flatten the curve for all of these people. You know, for the for the black people, for the trans people, for the gay people. Um, and it all of this stuff kind of makes me think of. I remember. You know, I don't know. Gay marriage has been legal for less than 10 years, I'm pretty sure. Yep. Um, and I remember before it was legal, uh, you know, some of the times it's like, I don't think that government should be involved in marriage, so yep. um, I just don't really understand the argument. Uh, but on back then, you know, I had, I, I, I wasn't as, I don't know. I didn't have the fervor for the libertarian shit that I do now. I, w- I considered myself libertarian even back then. Yeah. But um, I also was like, no, gay people, you know, like I have gay people in my family. They should be, if I can get married, they should be able to get married. Um, and it, it just makes me wonder, like, I remember back then people would say, oh, if we let gay people get married, you know, 10 years from now, people are going to be marrying animals or having sex with children. And here we fucking are. Oh, Jesus. You know, and back then... I was like, that's offensive. That's like uh, an awful thing to say. And now, I don't know. I don't know if it is an awful thing to say because look where we fucking are. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Because I would have felt the same. I would have I felt like that is an awful thing to say. You're, you're making a, a mountain out of a molehill type of situation. Um, and again, I know we're talking about conspiracy theory stuff with his norm, normalizing you know, sexuality and you know, very young people. It's ter- terrible and terrifying. I don't know to what degree that is an organized effort, you know, and to what degree it's a, a consequence of, you know, a, a side effect, an unintended consequence of, the, of this sort of super progressive liberal thinking that uh, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to be running against enough resistance yeah. to to not be so volatile and so extreme, and that's the worrisome part. It's like. I look at something like the stock market, and I see when enthusiasm gets really high and the market gets driven up, 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 that happens often where it's going up more than any of the analysts think are reasonable. It's because of the enthusiasm. It's because of the people's activity, not because of the fundamentals, not because the value is really there, because people perceive that there's more value there than there is. And the market goes up, 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 way higher than it should. And then it has to collapse. It has has to, you know, that bubble's got to pop. Um, I lost my thread at some point. I was making a connection between, oh, um, that, that you need to have the resistance. You need to have that counter force on the other side. And it just seems like whenever humans are involved, we, we, we'd never stay in a right around the, a balanced position in the middle. We always allow the extremes to be reached before we slap ourselves back into reality. And I don't understand that either. It's like nobody wants to stop the party when the market's doing well. It's like rah, rah, fucking rah. Um, and the same thing when it's going south. It's like, you know, all you have to do to stop this crash is stop selling your securities, man. Just be patient. Just stop. And people are like, fuck you. Every man for himself. Sell, sell, sell. And the market just keeps going down, 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 down. My point is, within anything that humans are involved in, we allow these wild extremes to, to swing. And Aristotle's been telling us since 400 BC, everything in moderation, you know? Yep. 
and that's the fucking answer. So it's the same thing with so, with social the social world. We let these ideas go wildly, you know, in one direction or the other. Um, you know, this this is this you know it's the same thing with politics. It's the same thing with these social movements. It's, I just find it interesting. You see that in the stock market. You see that in social movements. Yeah. Um, as far as like the conspiracy aspect of it, I, I don't know if there's some overarching you know cabal who is trying to normalize sex with children. Although I don't necessarily look at everything with Epstein, man. That's a fucked up situation. That is a lot of powerful people who, I mean, for some reason there's been no investigation or prosecution into it or anything, but um, very powerful, rich, wealthy people who were seemingly having sex with people who were underage Mm. regularly, Mm. uh, and that was being facilitated by a guy who, I mean... I don't know how much you know about Epstein, but it's like almost 100% that he was working for multiple intelligence agencies. What? Yeah, 100%. Dude, that is not conspiracy theory. That is, I mean, people who work for the government have said things like, I can't touch that guy. He's intelligence. Mm. On record. So, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder what the story is there, because you know that... I'll send you a podcast. Okay, okay. It seems like um, if if he were facilitating a big giant blackmail operation with the, with the world's big, most powerful and wealthiest people in the world, um, one explanation of that is he was one himself. And, oh yeah. Uh, the another explanation is that perhaps that he was um, like like you just suggested setting up. People for blackmail purposes. That have, you know, either way, uh, what you know, it's just. A, I just wonder what the story is. That's a, that's a crazy, crazy story. Dude, the the podcast that I'll send you, the guy makes a great point. Like I, I don't. Anybody who doesn't know a whole lot about Epstein, once you find out some of the stuff that is definitely hard fact, you're going to be like, "What the fuck is going on here? Like, why has there not been more of an investigation into this?" Um, but. So uh, what I was saying is I don't know if there's this bit this like cabal that is trying to do this but even if that's not the case and it's just like some fucked up side effect of this obsession with equality or whatever uh you better believe that there are people who are going to be taking advantage of that oh yeah you know um uh, so I don't know I just don't like it seems to me like the negatives outweigh the positives but I just these people don't seem to Think like that. Yeah, I I, uh, <clears throat> I agree, man. I think the Ghislaine Maxwell stuff, like we expected, like bombshells, and I'm hearing crickets. Yeah, and uh, and it's like <clears throat> it almost seems like the Ghislaine stuff is almost a distraction uh, from the Epstein stuff uh, because all of, that's all we need now is a little bit of a distraction to get the public's um, attention on another topic, and then we never have to go back to that again. Uh, I mean, they're trying desperately right now to uh, bring Hunter Biden's laptop back up. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know if they'll be successful in that either. That's so uh, fucked up. It's so fucked up, man. It's like that's the power that the media has. Is that I don't know. I don't know how long ago it was. A year and a half ago, whenever the election was, right when that initially came out, the media they already gave the rubber stamp that this is this is not real. You know, so people don't even you know. Um, 
like the normal person watching CNN is like, oh, that's a fake. Now that it's coming back up, they're like, oh, we're doing this again. This was bullshit. There's nothing to this, you know? Uh, but it seems, and I knew it back then. Anybody who was really paying attention knew back then that, no, there's something here. There's some kernel of truth in this, you know? Oh, yeah. So. <clears throat> hey, this is a weird change of subject, but uh, I just remembered this tweet that I saw the other day about Jin Saki. Yeah. <laughs> I just got to bring it up. So. I told you before, I think I told you before, um, it's not that Jin Saki is like a particularly sexy woman. She's a pretty girl, but you know. Yeah, she's fine. There's something about her. Maybe it's the position that she's in. Maybe it's the way that she like, maybe I got some weird kink that I'm not, that I'm, that I'm not quite like uh, conscious of, you know, but something about her, I was like, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's something sexy about Jin Saki. Yeah. I don't know why. Yeah. For me, like something in me that responds, I can't really explain it to you. Um, and then I saw somebody tweet three pictures of Jinsaki, right? Um, one and uh, it must have been a quote of something she said, and I'm like, I can't exactly remember. But she said something about her being happily married. She said she was happily married, and uh, the, the pictures were like of her um, at a podium at a press conference, and then they zoomed in on her face. And they zoomed in on her eyes. And, you know, in each picture it was like, you know, happily married. But she just had this very sexy look, you know, look on her face. It was in her eyes, you know. Yeah. And it was like every picture was making you question that that statement more and more. Uh, anyway, so I can't, I'm not the only one, apparently. Some, somebody made a really funny meme about it. What, what are your thoughts on Jin Saki, oh. uh, hot or not? Um, so that reminds me of... One time I was over at my parents' house, and my mom and dad love Fox News. Um, so they were watching Fox News, and Jen Psaki was on there, and my dad was like, love, you know, <laughs> bitch is disgusting, something like that. And Colin was like, she's not that bad. And I, I mean, I agree. I don't like Jen Psaki. She's a fucking idiot. Uh, she's a propagandist of the highest degree. Yeah. Um, but she's not ugly. You know, I, I also don't think that she's, like, drop-dead gorgeous or anything. No. But she's all right. She's fine. She's an attractive woman. Uh, but it's just so funny to me that, like, that ideological, like, fuck you. My dad's like, no, she's disgusting. <laughs> but so, you know what, though? Like, that feeling that your dad expressed so eloquently there, you know, yeah. fuck her. Um, like, I wonder if that is part of it for me. I don't know if it's if it's physical. I'm not sure. Like, like I say, she's a pretty she's a pretty enough girl. She's a redhead. I like redheads. Well, yeah, I think she's a fake redhead. Yeah, but either way, it's like, the, um, where was it going with this? Oh, um, there's no it's no surprise to anybody listening to this podcast that um, I have ill will against progressive philosophy. Yeah. You know, uh, mostly it's the it's it's to do with communism and the free for the people that want a free ride. It mostly that's that's where the resistance comes from. And Jinsaki seems to be she seems to represent that because she's the figurehead, she's the person going up there on TV, you know, lying to us with a straight face and it's so di disgusting to me yeah. and, and and dirty to me. I want to teach her a lesson. And I and I think maybe <laughs> I think maybe I want to teach her a lesson, right? Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the impulse your dad had to say ugh is the same impulse that I had. They said, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying? Um, I think maybe it's something to do with that. It's like, is, is that, that's what I meant when I said maybe there's some weird subconscious kink there that I'm, you know, not quite in touch with. Yeah. 
She's not bad. She's no Kaylee McKennany, though. Trump's, uh, you know, the last one Trump had, the very pretty blonde lady who was also just a badass. I got to look it up. Hold on. Oh, man. I can't believe you don't remember. She's like, I don't know. I feel like she was the um, the epitome of, like, what the internet, I, what am I trying to say here? Um, you think about people on the internet, think about people on Twitter and people arguing on Twitter and somebody makes a point and then somebody else who is smarter, better spoken, more funny, just like demolishes that person. And that's what she was. She would just like embarrass these people. Yeah. Okay. Here, here she is. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I remember her. Yeah. yeah she, she was a badass. Yeah. I see. mean, she's a, you know, I a propagandist in her own right, but I don't know. I guess I'm just, yeah. You know, I just don't remember. Like I, I remember her face, but I don't remember, uh, listening to her press I, conferences. This is Sarah Huckabee. Yep. I don't She's all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're talking about, well, we're talking about politicians, um, that are, that are beautiful, uh, or might be, uh, what's her face? Um, AOC. Well, her too. Yeah. Okay, but but mostly but going. mostly mostly because of her youthfulness, like politicians. How many young, good-looking politicians yeah. are there? It's not very many. Yeah, yeah. So AOC gets uh she gets a nod just because she's youthful. You know, like is she AOC is, pretty, is, is AOC gonna hold up as a middle-aged as a middle-aged woman? Probably. I don't, I don't know, man. I think she probably will. I mean, if she keeps up with her fitness, um, you know, most people can can kind of kind of drag that out. Um, now her name's gonna gonna she's like um. Oh damn it! It's gone. What is she's, she? Um, it might come back to me. I want to say she's from Iowa, or uh, it, it'll have to come back to me. Yeah. Shit, shit. Um, you know, somebody who I think is—I mean, she's a batshit psycho, crazy person. Uh, but I think that she is very pretty. Uh, Ilhan Omar, the Somalian. Um, yep. Congressional person from I think Minnesota, she's very pretty. Um, yeah, how might how do I spell her name? I'll just put I L H A N. All right, let's see. Um, yeah, you know, so this, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The uh, headscarf doesn't really do anything for me, but you know, in this particular picture, she looks like uh, Nefertiti or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing about. The thing about you say she's Somalian. Somalian. Yeah, the thing about the Somalians and also Ethiopians, they have a very unique look yeah. about them. You know, th- those people don't look like the rest of the Sub-Saharan African people. They, they're very distinct looking. You know, yeah. um, I wonder I, if that's like, you know, the Arab mixture. It, it, in there? It's got to be. It's yeah. got to be proximity to to Saudi Arabia and uh, you know, uh, it's got to be. Yeah, got to be. And I mean, in North Africa, obviously. Yeah, North. I mean, I. You think that the North Africans back in the day were like just Arabs? I think the North Africans back in the day were African. They were Black African. Uh, oh, really? I, yeah, I think so. I think they. I think they at some point historically got displaced by the Arabs who came into Africa, uh, f- who came back into Africa from the Middle East. That's what I think happened. That's hear, just a wild speculation. <laughs> you ever hear anything about pharaohs and um, you know people found in tombs in Egypt and stuff like that who have red hair? No, I'm interested. I thought you were going to go a different direction. I thought you were going to talk about black pharaohs, 
um, because that's something we could talk about. But go ahead. What were you going to no, say I about just, that? That's it. I mean, and you find the same thing like way over in China, like way farther over. Were there really redheaded pharaohs? Redheads. What? Well, I don't know. I, I'm or, pretty or, sure or there were, but I might mummies? be. Yeah, yeah. Definitely people with red hair. Okay. So that's something to uh, <laughs> consider. Yeah, Egyptian mummy with red hair. I remember. Wow. Yeah, there we go. Um, that's interesting. It's weird. So I do remember the, uh, the, the mummies they found in China with red hair. Uh, the, I can't remember now. I can't remember. They were in the Gobi desert. I think where they found them. Um, yeah, look at that man. Egyptian queen with red hair. That's amazing. Weird. Um, so there's an interesting part of like academia and when it comes to Egyptology and I don't know, like I had some very little bit of an exposure to it years ago, so I have no idea what it's like now, so I'm talking mostly out of my ass here. But there was um, research about black Sumerians, first of all, black Sumerians, and... Sumer is where, for people who don't know, uh, like modern day Middle East. Yeah, yeah, like the Fertile Crescent, so Iraq, 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 Syria. So, yeah, so there's, um, there's... Research about black Sumerians and then research about or controversy about fer- which pharaohs were Arab, you know, and I guess I say Arab just like genetically. I, I just mean not of African stock, but of more of that Middle Eastern stock versus black African pharaohs because, well, Egypt's in Africa and, you know, most of the people on that continent are of, of African descent. They're dark skinned. They have all of these characteristic features that are distinct from the Arab people. And when you see statues of pharaohs, some of them look Arab. Some of them do not. Yeah. So there so there's controversy about whether whether they there were black pharaohs, whether they were, uh, you know, you know, mixing mixing the Arab, you know, and the and the African peoples together in that area. That seems pretty reasonable to, to believe because you know Egypt's right there where yeah. Africa and the Middle East meet. Um, so, like, let me show you, for instance, uh, let's see, Ramses, uh, Ramses. Um, how do you spell Ramses? S E S. Ramses the yeah the second mummy. Here we go. So I don't want to be like. Racially insensitive, but what I want to point out about Ramses II, his mummy, is his nose. So we're, uh, we're looking at a picture of Ramses' nose. If you guys look up Ramses II, you can see what I mean. Right here is a good one. It's um, kind of a Semitic-looking nose. It is a quite Semitic-looking nose, exactly. I think that's, a, that's one way of putting it. So it's got, you know, a really steep... Uh, de- pronounced bridge of his very nose. Very pronounced bridge, very steep decline, um, you know, from the bridge. And uh, if you've seen Semitic people, um, you know, Arabs and Jews, modern Arabs and Jews living in that part of the world today, if you look around, I'm not, you know, again, not, I, 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 why I have to walk on, on fucking eggshells egg here is very fucking disturbing to me. But you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. If you look around, you're going to see commonalities and features of their face. And the nose is something you're going to notice is pronounced. It and is. that's what Ramses has got. Yeah. You're going to see Ramses' lips also. You're going to see that they're that they're very European looking. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're thin, they're small-ish. The nose is very much Semitic. And then I'm going to contrast that with two other pharaohs. Let's look at Akhenaten for a second. 
and statues of Akhenaten. Look at Akhenaten's lips. Yeah, you, you more might pronounce. You might not. Fuller. You might not say that his nose. Um, you know, you might not be able to. It's kind of bulbous. Yeah, towards the the bottom, the you know, but. But yeah, the, definitely but the lips. The lips are definitely very, very full, very different looking from what we just saw with Ramsey's. And then let's look at, um, let's look at, what was the early pharaohs? Khufu or Kefri? Let's look at Kefri. Um, how do you spell fucking Kefri? God damn it. I think it's K-H-A-F-R-E. Kefri there. So you look at Kefri, very early pharaoh. His nose in these statues in my opinion, looks much more like an African nose. Um, his lips, you know, they're kind of uh, ambiguous, actually. Yeah. But this, to me, looks much more like an African pharaoh than an Arab pharaoh. You know? Yeah, potentially. So it's a mixed bag, man. It's a mixed bag. Um, in any case, there is evidence that uh, that some of the pharaohs were black African. Yeah. And there is evidence that there were Af- black African people in classic ancient Sumer. I don't know how strong that evidence is. I never got into it, but it's just interesting. Uh, how did we get on this topic, man? I, I just started going. Oh, man. we were talking about Elon Omar. Elon oh, Omar, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, this picture is fucking stupid. I hate that. It's a this lady pretending she's like it's a, a, a what's the word I'm looking for? A perspective uh, yes. trick. She, she looks like she's kissing the Sphinx. Mm-hmm. I just hate it. I'm just a crabby old man. Yep. Um, see, I can think of doing something here, but yeah. it wouldn't be a kiss. It would be something worse. Um, um, just, all this stuff just makes me think of Graham Hancock. I fucking love that guy. Yeah, I love Graham Hancock also. You know, I, I love Graham Hancock's work on like ancient civilizations, but I really enjoy, and I want to like go down the rabbit hole again uh, because it's been a while, uh, of Graham Hancock's theories of like consciousness and stuff like that you know mm, he's yeah. good it's interesting um do you remember hearing that mostly from like podcast interviews yeah. or okay so youtube videos I'll, yeah. have to, I'll have to go back and check it out i i can't really nothing really comes to mind you know he wrote that book supernatural mm-hmm. yeah 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 i never read it though i got it if you want it oh interesting yeah um before oh man i don't know if i want to leave the grand hamcock topic maybe we'll put a pin in that i want to bring up something I'm a little bit reluctant to bring up because I don't know how to talk about it in a way that isn't creepy and weird for everyone. So, right. well, I definitely want to talk about it then. <laughs> so, you, like, well, it's like while we're talking about who's sexy and uh, you know, while sex is on the mind, I guess I'm going to bring this up. I don't know how to. I don't know how to. All right, so I'll just, I'll just do. I'll just say I'll, I'll preface this by saying, like most red-blooded men in the world, yeah, I'm a fan of sex. You know. Sure. I'm of the heterosexual uh, inclination, and I like, uh, you know, I like it. Yeah. You know, it's a good time. Um, also, it's a good time. Also, you know, I have my uh, preferences, like everybody does, yep. you know? And one of my preferences I probably share in common with lots of men. I enjoy a blowjob. Uh-huh. I enjoy a blowjob, Kyle. Sure. Um, I don't have, this is like a whole level of personal that I don't think we've ever reached on the podcast, no. but I want to tell you, I'll tell everybody listening. <laughs> I, listen, man, I'm pretty milk toast. I don't have a lot of like weirdness, you know. Maybe any that I that I'm like conscious of exactly, you know. I'm, I have a healthy sexual appetite, but nothing weird, man. I don't have any like I wouldn't call them kinks. I don't have anything weird that I can point to and say, you know, probably not a lot of people are, are like that. Nothing like that. I'm a normal, pretty normal dude. And I wonder, how do I put this? I guess like if I said that I had an, any kink at all. 
is that I particularly like blowjobs, man. <laughs> I particularly like them. Maybe that's my kink, right? Um, and maybe not. Maybe it's just a normal uh, level of interest in that in that you know act. And every guy is pretty much in that. Maybe I'm right normative, right in the middle. I hate that word, right in the middle. Maybe not though, because I, I I enjoy them. You know. Yeah. I tell you all of that because I had to to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Okay. And I'm gonna I'm gonna walk on eggshells here as well. I had a DMT experience, psychedelic experience. <clears throat> And in that experience, it was different than I, I've ever had before in the sense that there were sexual themes. Oh. So imagine a, psych a visual psychedelic experience with sexual themes. I never had one before. I, ne I didn't expect it. It was a surprise. It came as a surprise to me. And so anyway, I'll just get to the point. I had a, I had a DMT experience <clears throat> where... It wasn't. It wasn't crazy. It wasn't particularly vivid, right? But I did have a a, a vision, if you want to call it. I did have a, a visual of a <clears throat> very psychedelic, abstract, like face or head, like like you know, shoulders and head type of a thing. And the best I can do to describe this is like <laughs> it's like an Alex Gray painting, kind of. It's like. Um, the image was abstract. It was like made of uh, just an outline. And the outline was made of laser light. You know, it was like laser light. Colorful outline made of light. And there wasn't a lot of detail in the face, but I knew it was a face. And it, <coughs> and it was performing oral sex. It was a face, laser light face, with a laser light cock that it was putting in its mouth. <coughs> and... It wasn't like a uh, graphic, it wasn't like I was watching this uh, laser light porn show in my brain. It was like um, very subtle. It was like a head swallowing a cock. And they were all made of light. And it wasn't, and it was, once it had swallowed the cock, it was one thing. You know, the cock and the head <laughs> laser light yeah. show was one thing. And it was the strangest thing, man. Because here I am watching this. And it's like, I get the feeling that I'm supposed to be thinking about this. I'm supposed to be thinking about the sex act. I'm supposed to be thinking about why it is I have a, such a high esteem for it, <laughs> right? And I'm supposed to be thinking about it symbolically. What does it mean? What's happening in this sex act? Why is the appeal there for you? And it was like, I was being asked, like I was asking myself in this psychedelic experience to analyze this. And symbolically, and try to find out what it means. What is what is the sex act of a blowjob? And what are the and can you attribute symbol symbolic meaning to to the act? Sure. And if so, what is it telling you? And I, it blew my mind, man. I didn't actually, I didn't actually have the time I needed to think about it, so I didn't get very far with it. But it it was a very strange experience. And I wanted to, I wanted to share it with you. What do you think of that, man? I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. I've never had that kind of an experience um, with the DMT. So I, I never had that kind of experience ever. Yeah. Why? I know people do. I guess have sexual themes and psychedelic visions, but I never have. So it was weird to me. Yeah. 
I don't know what to say about that. What do to you be think? With what you. do you think the symbol is? If if there's symbolism in the the act of oral sex, what do you think it is? I don't know. Um, I think for some reason my mind goes to like uh, it's like an old school thing. You know, I think of like a guy from the fifties who's like got a side girl who he will let give him a blowjob, but he wouldn't let the mother of his children do that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that that's initially where my mind went, but that doesn't seem like, like that's man, I don't know. I, no, no, I think it's that's actually interesting, like psychologically, because if you were to separate, like the deviant type of sexual, even even if you think they're deviant, like deviant types of sexual I- impulses, and you would, in it, on purpose, um, separate those acts from your from your wife, like you're holding the the status of wife ab- above, you know, uh, this particular sexual act, there's some kind of, like, disconnect. Like, what you want to have is a sexual relationship with your wife that is more free than a random encounter because you know each other and trust each other so much that you can be freaky if you want to be freaky. And you accept that from one another. You should be able to, to have a dirty, you know, sexual act like you would have with a with a whore. You should be able to have that with your wife. Yeah. And if you can't, there's a... Divorce um, her. There's, <laughs> if you can't, there's a um, psychological integration that needs to happen that hasn't happened. If you're separating that out and saying, I can't let my wife do something dirty to me, um, that's there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. You know, there's something psychological that needs to be integrated. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I guess um, it does make sense. I just don't know. Like, I can understand. I think, like, you look back in the history, and uh, I think that a big problem that people had with homosexuality back in the day is that we need to propagate the species. And if you're busting in dudes' buttholes, it's not helping. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe it. Maybe there's some some of that. You know? So, so I do think, and it's it's not a direct link, but I do think that some of the symbolism has to do with taking into your body the seed of life. Mm. That sounds weird, but there is symbolism there. Um, it's the same thing like when you when you plant your seed in the proper place and you get and you get her pregnant, right? There's symbolism about planting a seed and harvesting. There's there's symbolism there and it's not super different from planting that seed in, in her her mouth versus her vagina, you know what I mean? So that symbolism holds and like things happen like that in dreams where things will be topsy-turvy a little bit, but the but you understand, you can see through the symbolism. What's happening is She's taking in the seed, your seed into her body. That that's happening in both cases, in a traditional sex act or in an oral sex act. Um, so there's some, there's some symbolism there, and I wonder if it's connected to like the oneness that I always talk about in psychedelic experience. You know, like uh, she takes your seed into her, she takes a part of you into her, and incorporates it into her into her body. Um, you know. This is going to be very hard for your mom to hear, but there's, huh. al- but there's also something like that with communion. You know, you take the body and blood of Jesus into your body, you incorporate it into your being, and there's something like that. Sure, that's going to go over well with the wife. <laughs> I know. But, there's uh, a- blowing you is like taking <laughs> communion. Golly, when you, when you say it, it makes me cringe. But I'm just listen, guys. I'm literally exploring the symbolism 
live in real time with you right now, these are the kind of thoughts that I would have if I were thinking about it in, in the quiet of my mind. I'm just letting all you guys peep in on it. Um, I don't necessarily think this about that in particular, although maybe it is. Uh, I don't know. Um, but I definitely think that there are things that are you, that you see in a psychedelic trip that are meaningful and that you can derive, you know, you can derive a meaning from. Um, but I also wonder, like, is it all that way, or is sometimes are you just is it is it just like random firing of synapses in your brain? Like, yeah. may, were you were you horny when you when you took the DMT? You know, uh, I, I'm not yeah. literally asking yeah. you, but I'm saying, you know, maybe but, that had an effect on it. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, but it wasn't conscious. And I'll tell you, it's because, like, the sexual theme in the experience, it took me by surprise. Like, I didn't expect it. I didn't want it. You know, I didn't expect it. It, it took me by surprise. But when that happens, that may always makes me think that there's something subconscious that's trying to get out and that I'm trying to tell myself something. So I need to pay attention, especially if it surprises me. It comes out of left field. It's like, I, hey, I'm really trying to tell myself something that in my waking life I'm avoiding Man. because otherwise it wouldn't surprise me, you know? Um, that's interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. Just the, the fact that you had, I, I don't know, I guess it's not really that surprising because I have heard about, like, sexual imagery in psychedelic visions. Um, and then you think about all like the fertility shit, you know, like yeah. it's all over the place. Um, got the fertility wall over. Is that? That's the new one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I thought so. He's, Kyle's pointing at my wall of cave paintings. So we got that, that lion figurine that we talked about last Sunday on the podcast. Uh, we've got that print up on the wall. So it's pretty cool. It is cool. Do you buy these things framed or are you getting them framed? Uh, no, I'm, I'm, buy, I'm buying the frames and buying the prints and putting them together myself. Nice. Right. Um, so, so, you know, going back to this psychedelic thing, uh, when you say like, is it possible that some of that imagery is meaningful and some of it's not, uh, I, I, I liken it to a dream because it's like dream images, get, they get pulled from a, from a reservoir of like images of things you've seen, things you've experienced, uh, fantasies that you've had. And you, you've got this like stockpile of images that's stored somehow in your memory. And when you have a dream, I think like there's meaning in the dream that gets painted up in those images. It's like the ideas need to have a vehicle to ride around in. So they embody an image that already exists in your head. It's like a spirit, right? This is so fucking weird. It's like a spirit comes down from this eternal place and possesses the idea in your head and then, and then uses it like a puppet to walk around in your dream putting something in front of you that you're meant to consider. And the images sometimes don't match up with the ideas. Sometimes you have to piece them out, piece them together, which is why dreams are so fucking weird. But I do think there's meaning there. I think what's possessing those images in, in and putting them before your, your dream eyes is alive and real. I don't know, you know, I, I, it's hippy-dippy, it's, but... But I think that's something like that's what's going on. And, and the same thing, I think, is going on in psychedelic visual experiences. Hmm. Cool, man. It's so weird, man, because that what I just painted, this picture about a spirit descending from heaven and possessing an idea that exists in your head, that's also how I feel about my body. You know, like in, like in a platonic sense or in a, you know, religious sense, I feel like my body is uh, a symbol that... A spirit has descended from heaven to embody 
to bring it alive. And the same fractal picture I just painted about ideas, I think that happens, that's the same thing happening in our physical bodies and in the cosmos. I literally believe that in this metaphysical way that I, you know, can't exactly explain to you. Yeah. Um, Follow that, Kyle. I don't know what to say <laughs> about that. I do think that, uh, so you think that the same thing that is coming down from heaven and, you know, uh, what's the word you used? It, you know, Embodying an idea? Yeah, t- taking residence inside yes, of you. Yes, that's it. Um, you think that's the same thing that is like taking residence inside of an electron? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, when, and when the Bible says that the, the body is the temple of God, that's what it means. Your body is the place where the God lives. Okay. And, and I, think it's a, I think it is a fractal experience. It's happening on multiple levels. Uh, you know, infinite, infinite, maybe. Yeah. It just doesn't always, you know, like the, this goes back to what you were talking about with uh, Dr. Schustadt Hughes, mm-hmm. um, that it's not like the electrons might have it, but the heater doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, but the electrons in the heater do. Yes. But for some reason, the electrons in us do, but we also do. Yes. Yes. That's true. Weird. Yeah, and the only thing that I've ever found that tr- makes some sense of that to me, it is weird uh, because there's like there's there's like a weird. It's hard to understand how how there can be no connection between your consciousness and the consciousness or the sentience, I should say, yeah. of your of your cells or atoms or molecules or whatever. Um, it's hard to understand why there isn't a connection there. Um, in the last couple chapters of Dr. Shersted Hughes' book that I just finished, um, Wednesday will be the last episode coming out on it, he proposes an interesting solution to that. But I encountered one before when I was reading Philip Goff's book, um, Galileo's Error. He said there's this neuroscience um, discipline, I guess you would call it, called Integrated Information Theory, ITT. Integrated information theory. And what they say is that there's like a law. I'm going to butcher this, guys. Just understand this is coming with like very little information. There's like a law that of some, some, some form that governs on what level a, a system is conscious. So it's like um, if you took an individual cell out of your body and you put it on a Petri dish, it would be conscious all by itself. But if you incorporate it into your body, into this system, it's the system that's conscious. And that's not the same thing that um, Dr. Shersted Hughes uh, would say about his form of panpsychism, but it's some explanation of how you can have a system that's conscious on multiple levels, but on lower levels, they defer to a higher level consciousness. It has to do with a with integrated information. That's why it's called integrated information theory. Yeah. It's if the information that's relevant to the cells and molecules and atoms, if all of that stacks up into a greater a greater system, then it's the greater system that's conscious sure. and not the individual components. And that's a real you know theory. It's being trying to be worked out right now. Whether it's you know actually the truth is a whole other thing, but it's interesting. Yeah. I think, uh, like, so the electron, the cells, they have their own level of sentience and we have consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like 
it's the same thing. I, I think about um, like dogs, you know, like they have it too. They're the cells in their body have their own sentience and they have their own sentience as a, as a whole. It just makes me think of like, I don't know, like um, putting pieces together to make like a phone, like a cell phone. Like, uh, you yeah. know, 20 years ago we had brick cell phones, Nokia bricks. And now we figured out a way to put those components together to where we have iPhones, you know? Yep. And we're like iPhones. Yeah. Dogs are like Nokia bricks and we're like iPhones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, do you remember me saying something like in, years ago after I, my mystic experience, my crazy mystic experience? Do you remember me saying something like, like wondering about looking up in this space, looking up into the expanse, the infinite black of space and closing my eyes and looking out at the infinite black of my imagination and wondering what the difference is between the two? Do you remember yeah. me saying that? I ask you because in Dr. Shirstead Hughes' book, at the end, he he says exactly this sort of thing that I remember th- saying and talking about, and it, it has to do with that. I always wondered, like, it went something like this. If God is infinite, and if if I am God, which is something you, you believe if you have a mystic experience, that God is infinite and that you are God. If you believe that, then you, you ask yourself, like, if there is no difference between what I am and the cosmos, which is another thing you think in the mystic experience, everything is one, you would expect to be able to see or experience infinity within yourself because you're God. So it occurs to me that that's imagination. That's the place where anything can exist in our imagination, and there's no end to it. It's infinite, our imagination. And there didn't seem to me to be anything different in that idea than in the notion of the space around us. That it's this infinite expanse where anything can exist and there's no end to it. And it even looks the same. When I close my eyes and I, and I ponder, it's black and I can bring images to mind in the black. Just like a, a star can appear in space. You know, something like that. There's a connection. And he says this interesting thing, man. He's like, <clears throat> he's like, close your eyes and imagine a triangle. And now imagine a second triangle and then open your eyes and then ask yourself is there space in your imagination or is there a spatial relationship between the two triangles in your imagination absolutely well, yeah, I don't know how you pictured them one is next to the other so yeah. there's a relationship one is overlapping the other there's a relationship of space in your imagination and then you open up your eyes and you look around and you see that, that there's a relationship of space in the world around you and the question is, what's the difference between mental space and physical space? And he suggests in the book, there isn't one. And that is some mind-bendy shit. He's, this is what he says in the book. He says, if you have a space with no sense data in it, it's mental space. As soon as you put sense data in it, it's physical space. Hmm. And it's like, and this is this is the idea that I, that I had. It's like imagine you close your eyes and you imagine um, a star and a planet. You imagine it in, in in your mind. If you could make that real by by snapping your fingers or wiggling your nose bewitch style, if you could make it real, 
then it wouldn't be mental space anymore. It would be physical space. Yeah. And I was just like, boom, mind blown, man. How do you do that, though? <laughs> I want to do it. <clears throat> well, this is the thing, man. I, I want to do it, too. But the question is, was it done before? Yeah. Right? <laughs> was it done before? Did did the did the mind of God imagine a cosmos and in, in, into being and make that mental space physical space? It's like that's like a creation story. That's a creation story, man. Yeah. God damn, that's good. Yeah. And then and then I'm going to spoil this for everybody here, but the next step in that in that logic from Dr. Shirstead Hughes' book is if mental space and physical space are <laughs> are really the same the same thing. Then he says, "What might be an explanation of uh, consciousness? Like, a, you know, he's a panpsychist guy. So, what might be the explanation from a panpsychist perspective? Is that space is sentient? It's space that is sentient, right? Yeah. Not the objects in it. The <coughs> objects in it. The objects in it possess, in a way, the sentience that it, it that space already is. You know, something like that. It's amazing." trippy man and you know we talked about this once before you remember when I said you close your eyes and you imagine Kyle in your mind mm-hmm. uh, it's something it's something like that is is the Kyle in your mind that you're imagining is that Kyle sentient you're sentient question. and you're put and you're imagining it is that Kyle sentient ah. Ah. who knows I don't know man might be might be and that's fucking amazing that's amazing yeah Sorry, man. I got a little. I got a little excited during this conversation. You, when you imagine yourself in your head that that guy exists somewhere, what well, he does exist somewhere because he's sitting right in this chair. But the guy who's in your head is not sitting in the chair necessarily. Maybe he isn't is. it? I don't, I don't know. I mean, like I can imagine myself right now, and I mean, I could imagine myself sitting in this chair, but I could also imagine myself like standing at the edge of Niagara Falls. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So is that guy standing at the edge of Niagara Falls? Because I have done that. So maybe. Mm. Man, that's an interesting question. You think about like time and, you know, the idea that everything is happening all at once, that all there ever is is right now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So am I still standing at the edge of Niagara Falls? Yeah. Kind of. Kind of. In a way. Especially when I imagine myself doing it. So listen, I wasn't sure where to. Where to put insert this into the conversation? But now seems like as good a time as any because we've been getting some hippy dips going. Um, I've been reading this book right here, uh, right the here. Red book, the Red Book, Carl Jung. Yeah, um, it is blowing my fucking mind. It's blowing the top off of my head, yeah. and it keeps doing it. Sonu Shamdasani. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, that's the person that did the intro. So I talked about this before, and I've had the book for a while, and I never cracked it open because I was intimidated by it. Yeah. Because Jordan Peterson said that it's the culmination of everything Carl Jung ever thought, and it's the hardest thing that you can imagine to understand. And I started reading it, and I understood it crisp and clear, every bit of it. Yeah. And it's because I had that mystic experience. Everything this guy is saying in this book is blowing my fucking mind. So I want to tell you a couple things and just get your get your take. All right. So one of the things that Carl Jung uh, did 
Oh, he talked about this on the podcast before. He did something called uh, active imagination yeah. where he would sit down and meditate. Well, basically what he was doing was allowing his, he was relaxing his mind, allowing his mind to be sort of fluid and creative, allowing images to pop into his head like they do when you're just trying to, you know, meditate, let's say. And, but what he would do is when the images popped in his head, he knew they were coming from his subconscious or his unconscious. Like images are like archetypes. Um, so what he would do is he would like, I don't know how, but he would, he would try to keep those images in his imagination, try to keep them there. Yeah. And he would try to allow them to, to be possessed by an archetype to be possessed by what he ca- what he calls his own um, instinctual forces. So the instincts that exist in your psychology, he was letting them be embodied by these images, kind of like we were talking about earlier. These images that would appear in his head, and he would try to keep them there, and he would observe what they do, what they say, how they interact, and he would allow himself to kind of play into it, but not not in a way that he was like um, he wasn't the director of the movie. He was sort of in the audience. Okay. And uh, he got better and better and better at that to where he could, he could almost like bring them to mind. So, he, so uh, again, I'm not all the way through this, but I want to paint this picture for you. So he says that he encounters... You all right, bud? Yeah, I'm good. Just got a little bit of a headache. Oh, sorry, man. No, you're good. Um, he encounters what he calls the spirit of the time. And it's like a reference to Gauss or whoever. It's like the the zeitgeist, the spirit of the time. And he has all these interactions with the spirit of the time. And he has conversations with the spirit of the time. And whenever the spirit responds to him, it's like he he puts it in italics in the book. So it's like, even though he's having this conversation with himself, it's like a conversation between multiple people. And what comes out of the mouth of the spirit is shit that he doesn't understand. So you have to you have to understand it's him. It's it's his imagination that's putting words in the mouth of the spirit, but he doesn't know what they mean. And it's like his unconscious speaking to him. So it's like a way for him to dream on demand. And yeah. he, and he can kind of like study it, spend more time in the dream world and understand his his unconscious. And there's like this thing, this weird battle going on between the spirit of the time and the spirit of the depth. And it's like the hair stands up on my arms when I say it. So he describes the spirit of the time as like, he doesn't exactly explain this, but this is what I pick up. That it's like what it's like to be a human being in the modern in the modern world. You know, it's different in every generation. Yep. It's the spirit of the time, you know. Like what is it what is okay for me to be or to or to aspire to or to think or to say? What's okay? It's different in every generation, and it's a zeitgeist, the spirit of the time. And that's the spirit that's in his ear all the time, speaking the most loudly, trying to influence him the, the most. But then behind that spirit is this whispering spirit called the spirit of the depth. And it's, the, it's not the spirit of the time. It's the spirit of all time. And it's what it's, what it's like to be a human being always. What's it like to, to be sentient you know what what does it really mean deep down and it's like this very primal spirit that always sticks his nose in and whispers little little things to Carl Jung and and he's got this conflict going on between the two and he wants he wants to listen to the spirit of the depth and he wants to kind of ignore the spirit of the time but he can't entirely because he's stuck in that culture he's stuck in you know 
and it, I, you can just see when you're reading this this battle going on in, within Carl Jung, and it's fucking amazing, man. It is amazing. Yeah, I love it. He says all kinds of stuff in there that I just it resonates with me. Like he says, he says that uh, God is whatever you aren't. So if you're a man, God to you is a woman. If you're a, an adult, God to you is a child. And he was going through all these examples, trying to explain that God is the part of you that you aren't, and it will manifest for you in whatever that whatever way that is for you. Whatever you aren't, that's what God is. And that, that's the idea of the anima that we talked about before. That's exactly how I understand the anima. Uh, it's just some really deep shit, man, and it's, it's freaky, man. It's like re- reading that is like reading an account of a crazy man, but it all makes sense to me. It's the strangest thing, man. Yeah. It's so cool. I can't wait to, I can't wait to read it. It's hard for me to, I mean, I guess that's, you know, you said that he got better at doing that. It's something that I would have to imagine you have to get better at because I can't even imagine that. Like, I, I can imagine something in my head, but, like, it saying things that I'm not, like, imagining for it, I just don't. Right, but I, I, but I think he is. I think it's like, like he'll ask a question um, that's a genuine question, and then he'll provide the answer in whatever comes to him. But not in an effortful way. It's like whatever comes to me, okay. that's coming from my unconscious. So those are the words I'm going to put into the mouth of the spirit, and it's it's just really, really interesting. And it's dude. At one point, he even says that he's writing. He's writing for his audience. Like he wants to write to be read. He wants he wants to be famous. He wants to be a big name. And he's like struggling with this because he knows that the the instincts or the um, the reason for his efforts are a little bit selfish and he feels guilt about it and he says he says things to me like I'm just saying what Nietzsche said only he said it better you know it's yeah. like those are his own demons and he's giving them voices in the book it's just fucking cool man yeah it's something about it really speaks to me man I'm like really eager to get into it would have been really cool if Freud and Jung could have had a podcast oh my god <laughs> um but yeah I don't we should I think we should Practice our German accents, and we should start another podcast where we pretend to where be we young pretend to be young and Freud. All right, you can be young. I'll be Freud. Okay. <laughs> um, oh boy. Um, what is a? Uh, it's C. G. Young. Is it Gustav? Yeah, Gustav. Yeah, okay. Carl Gustav. Another thing he says um, in that Red Book is that um, he's like, I want God to be transcendent and the highest thing. That's what I want God to be. So I keep ignoring all the other things that God is. And he said, it, it torments me and it won't leave me alone. It's like my consciousness wants me to recognize that I can't make God alone the highest thing. I have to understand that he's also the lowest thing. Uh-huh. And he's like, he just keeps getting tormented with this idea that he has to see God in the most petty and disgusting things. And I'm like, it's just mind-bending and interesting. Fascinating to me, man. Yeah. It is hard to imagine God as those things. Yeah, you know? sure is. When we were talking to Daniel Torden the first time, and one of the things I said to him that it immediately resonated with him, it sounded like, was people th- always say that God is all good without realizing that's only half of God. Yeah. That God is he's all. He's all good and all evil. He's the whole kit and caboodle. You can't, you can't have one without the other. 
And that's what Carl Jung is struggling with. You know, while he's writing this book. I think that's what a lot of people who have more traditional views of religion and stuff, I think that's what they struggle with too. And like, yeah, you know, I know that imagining God as, you know, a hooker, you know, like yeah. that's hard for people. Yeah, um, or, Jesus actually... Oh, that's Jesus actually. Well, no, no, no. I, I know where you're probably where you're going, but in the Gnostic Gospels, Jesus actually calls God a whore. Oh yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah. That's that's rough. In but, what context? Like like uh, in the context of going through opposites and saying God is both both of them, okay. one and the other, one and the other, one and the other, and it's the same thing that Carl Jung does in this book. Yeah. But he's resisting, and I think it's funny that you bring up religion. Because you're right that modern religion, maybe not pagan religion, but modern religion um, emphasizes the the highest aspects of God as if they're the only ones that we should be aspiring to being spiritual rather than you know physical, mortal. We should be aspiring to be all good and get rid of all the evil. We should be Christ-like, that kind of thing. Yeah. And um, we never talk about God being... The, op- the opposite of all those things. Then you think about like Hinduism and Kali, you know, and they're worshiping Kali and she's like the goddess of death and destruction and gore. And when you look at her images, she's like a statue of this like multi-armed fanged woman with her like her, with her foot up on a dead body. And she's, she's got weapons in all of her hands and like they would worship that. Like we are missing that. That is important. Makes me think of in Game of Thrones, you know, they have the Faith of the Seven. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, I don't even remember what all of them are, but one of them's the mother, one's the father, and one of them is the warrior. Yes. Um, I feel like, I mean, to go off on a Game of Thrones tangent here, but Game of Thrones is interesting, man. I've been listening to the audiobook, and uh, I just feel like George R. R. Martin's a smart guy. I wish he would release those last two fucking books. Um, because I think that. You better do it before cholesterol gets him. I know. That's what a lot of people are worried about. But I think that, um, you know, if you look at Game of Thrones, they're obviously like the, uh, what's the, the Khal Drago? What is What were his people? The Dothraki. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're obviously some kind of like, you know, porting over of real history into his world yep. of like um, the Mongols, the Scythians, yeah. things like that. Yep. Um, and I think that, if you look at that faith of the seven, in my mind, that's kind of like Christianity. You know, they have uh, the septs, which is like cathedrals, uh, the septons, which are like priests. Then you've got the the old gods, you know, the ones that Ned Stark and all. And that's like that's like paganism. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because like the, the classical gods, uh, was that my phone? Oh, yeah, it was. The classical gods, um, Jordan Peterson talks about them as psychological forces. And you can see, like what you just said, when we were talking about the seven, the mother, the father, the warrior, you can see that in Zeus, Hera, and uh, Ares, or whoever the god of war was. All of the classical religions, their gods are exactly that. They're um, They're different manners of being. They're different manners of being. They're different paths of being. They yeah. represent different psychological p- possibilities. You know, we all we all have the the um, potential to be those things. You know, in different varieties. So they're they're parts of our psyche that um, exist in all of us, and we don't we don't feel like we we identify with them. 
we feel like we're separate. We're we're a self, you know, different from our you know our psychological uh, bits and pieces. And so that's why we paint them up in, in uh, supernatural figures and call them gods, yeah. because they don't feel like they're part of us. They feel like they they reach down and affect us from some other place. Yep. Um, but really, really, they exist within us. And that I think is the difference between polytheism and monotheism. People who haven't realized that all those forces within you fall under the umbrella of you, yeah. and you are one thing. You're not, you're not several things, right? You're not a pantheon. You're one thing. And I think I, ultimately that's the difference. I do think that you mentioned how people who practice more, I don't know, traditional Western religions, they have a problem with that God is good and evil. Yep. You know, that's just incompatible with what they think um, and then you mentioned that maybe paganism wasn't like that and I think that paganism probably wasn't like that because you look at like Loki who's a god yeah but he's an asshole you know <laughs> uh, and even even the gods who are more I don't know like heroic like Thor Thor's a, a bumbling idiot a lot of the time you know like he's a guy who just wants to smash things with his hammer even if that's not what's called for yep. you know yeah so well, and it's and you know people say that they say that those um, the qualities of the classical gods were um, they were representative of the faults, the mortal mortal characteristics, the same faults that we have. Um, I lost my train of thought because my wife's texting me photos of the daughter of the uh, girls upstairs. Ah, boy, and I also have to pee. Do you have to pee? I don't have to pee. I could take a break and take a, a ibuprofen. I'm all right. You sure? I mean, you know, if you're going to take a break, I might pop one, but... All right, hold on. You guys will be right back. That's the magic of not editing, so you guys are in on the uh, potty break. I don't have to pee anymore. I feel much better. Yep. Yeah. So when we were up there, I don't know, I, do you have anything to say about what we were last talking about? Uh, we're talking about the <laughs> classical gods and uh, psychological forces, and I think, I don't know, maybe, maybe we put that to bed. So when we were up there, I was looking out... Your back window, you can see through your neighbor's backyard and into the people behind them's front yard. <coughs> and one of the people back there has a big Ukrainian flag hanging. Oh, yeah. And I just... I, you see Ukrainian flags all over the fucking place now, you know? It's like... It's the biggest fucking virtue signal, you know? Yeah. Like, I, I, under, I don't... I'm not happy about what's happening to the people of Ukraine, you know? But these people don't give a fuck about Ukraine. They're not sending money. They're not doing... They, all they're doing is putting a flag in their yard. Yeah, you're right. It's fucking irritating, man. It is irritating. It's like uh, when, you know, I don't know, something big happens in culture and Facebook puts out the... Make the... You know, we've got this little image. Make it your profile picture. What good is that doing anybody? It's not doing anything for anyone. You're right. You're right. Fucking hate I, it, you're man. You're right. And I think everyone listening needs to hear that. Because you, yeah. if, you've, if you're one of those people... Uh, it does. I've been that person in the past. To be fair, I mean, you know, when Charlie Hebdo got shot up, I made, I had, you know, Je suis Charlie. Mm. I made that my my image on Facebook. Yeah, yeah it's because you're a schmuck. Yeah. Doesn't make a difference, man. Your your get your rainbow flag, your BLM flag, your your whatever it is that you're doing. It doesn't make it doesn't it does. Kyle makes an excellent point. It says nothing to anybody. Does no work or good for the world apart from making you feel good about yourself. Yeah, and making other people think that you care. Yeah. Which it's is, actually it's really actually manipulative. Part. Maybe yeah. that's why it irritates me and you. Yeah, because it's manipulative. You don't give a fuck. You no. don't really care about what's going on in Ukraine mm -mm. any more than I do. And it's like I fully admit 
yeah, I don't. I it's not good. It's not good what's happening. But I'm not really doing anything about it either. I don't not you know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'd ask what could you do, but I know yeah. that there are people even from the United States that 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 bought a plane ticket and went over there and joined the joined the army. That's fucking nuts, Insane. man. Nuts. I you know. But you uh, could do that. <laughs> you could do that, but I don't. That sounds like a fucking terrible idea, to be honest with you. Um, it's just uh, like I, like I said, I don't want America to get involved in this because what businesses of it is mine? Of it is mine. So I'm gonna go join the fucking Ukrainian military. <laughs> like that is all political shit, man. These yeah. people. It's like um, I'm gonna go join the Ukrainian military because I've been brainwashed into this. I don't know. Uh, anti-Russia, anti-Putin because he was like chummy with Trump, you know? I don't know. So I'd like to ask Stefan Molyneux what he would, what he thinks about this. I haven't listened to that guy in forever. Yeah. Um, Maybe I should. I lost my train. I had, there was something there connected to Stefan. Yeah. Uh, uh, damn it. He, I don't think he does a whole lot of political talk anymore. He does more of the... Uh, the self-help, the, the psychology, yeah, psychology, self-help type stuff. Yeah, good for him, man. Um, yeah, that guy. That guy gets a lot of shit for not being for not being licensed or whatever. But licensure, give you, me a fucking you should, break. You, should you have to be licensed just to talk to people and tell them your opinion? Yeah, you know? And and I do think I think a lot of people would scoff at this because Stefan Molyneux is the devil. But um, I do think that he genuinely wants to help people. You Absolutely. Know? So yeah. Absolutely, man. I mean, I think he wants to make money, too. I mean, he's constantly, like, you know, talking about the length where you can go to support, but he should. I mean, he's making, he's putting all this content out that people value and and consume. I think he should be able to ask them for money. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think think I'd spin jogged. It's to do with, uh, oh, I'm losing it again. It's to do with Ukraine. Um, Oh, it's the nonviolent stuff. Oh. Stefan Molyneux is really big on nonviolence, especially when it comes to um, disciplining children. Yeah, and that's that's the question. It's like there's a there's some people who think, and there's a way in th- of thinking about how to solve this issue. And it's if Russia is going to insist on using violence, that the only thing that will work is more violence. Is 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 an extraordinary display of violence above and beyond the realm that Russia's capable to make to make a statement to spank them on the bottom and say go to your room. Yeah, like there's 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 a way of looking at it that says we need violence now and we need it um, to be dramatic and uh, to be it's fucking insane. But but if if. Listen, man, this is an outrageous statement, but just suppose that we went and just nuked 14 major cities in Russia and, and, you know what I mean, and just said, uh, we've had enough. 14 a lot. Yeah, we've had enough. You're going to pull out of, we're going to, we've, we've, we've completely reduced you to rubble. Um, If you, you know, you're going to pull out of Ukraine today or we're going to drop the rest of these nukes. And there's a chance and maybe a good chance that something like that would end it tomorrow. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that that the consequences are worth it. I'm just saying that there's a one way of looking at it that says decisive violence is a solution to violence. 
Stefan Molyneux would say that it's like spanking your kid for hitting another kid. Like you can't go in there and use violence to teach your kids not to be violent. And both of those make sense to me. So that's what I'm asking you about. What do you, what, what do you think? I mean, what, what do you think? Um, I think that the biggest, like the biggest reason why I think we should not go towards violence is that de-escalation is the only answer that doesn't result in the death of humanity. I mean, an open war between the United States and Russia, it's like the most important issue that humanity has ever faced. Because if that happens, there's a serious possibility we could wipe out all the life on the fucking planet. Yep. Um, so I just think that, so from like a pragmatic point, I just think that de-escalation is the best way to go. But what if the quick, but what if the most efficient path to de-escalation is escalation? I just don't think that that's, I, I don't, I don't think that you're going to get de-escalation from escalation. I think that they have their capabilities too, and they could easily retaliate. I agree. But don't, but don't you think we got de-escalation from escalation in the second world war? It's like de-escalating didn't work when Hitler was taking over countries after country, after country, we had to actually bring the thunder down on his ass to, to bring, to make that peace possible. And I realize, you know, history is done and gone, and we can't we, we can't assume that that's exactly what will play out this time. But you know, I don't know, man. I don't I don't know the answer. I'm, I, I think that Hitler, you know, the, this is like a, this is one of those things that you're not going to have to do a deep fake. It's going to be, you know, I, I might get in trouble for this, but I think that Hitler's escalation was a response to escalation. Um, you know, uh, everything you look at everything that happened in World War One, which was nowhere near as black and white a war as World War Two. I shouldn't even say that World War Two is black and white because it's fucking not. Um, but obviously, what Hitler did is bad. That's black and white. Um, the the methods were not great. Uh, but I just think that, like I said. His escalation was a response to escalation from Western power. Well, I mean, yeah. Germany's a Western power too, but I don't know, man. I uh, I only know what I remember from the history books, and what what's in the history books is pretty fucking selective as it is. So I don't know the answer to that um, or the truth of that. I know that Germany was laid really low after the First World War, and you might make the argument that that was escalation par excellence like they're they're you know that was as escalated as you can as you can have have done it by demolishing uh, a great nation taking away their power crippling them with with all these uh reparations and pay, paying all these countries all this money literally bankrupt this this nation uh, maybe maybe that was you know the height of, of escalation and it's hard to imagine uh more but what i remember from the history books at school is that that Hitler was appeased by the by the European powers each time he marched into a country and took it over until he took over Poland and they decided, well, the appeasement's not working. He has half of Europe. Now we have to do something. Um, that always was painted to me to, to be the rest of Europe basically doing nothing wrong and Hitler just 
trying to take a little bit more, a little bit more, all by himself, having not been provoked at all. And maybe that's not at all fair. It probably isn't. It sounds pretty one-sided now that I say it out loud. But I just don't know the truth of it because history sucks. You yeah. Know? I think that there are parallels between what was going on with Hitler then and what's going on with Putin now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the past, the Soviet Union was obviously very left, you know, um, in some respects. Um, but... Russia nowadays, it's definitely more... Putin is kind of a conservative leader, you know? That's interesting. Um, And I think that's part of, you know, the all the hate toward... I mean, again, Putin, you know, he's not doing anything great right now. But kind of before this, and even, even with this, Trump did it, Biden did it, or Biden's doing it, mm. uh, Obama did it, Bush did a whole fuck ton of it. You know, but it's really bad when Putin does it. It is really bad when Putin does it, but it's bad when everyone does it. But this concentration on Putin, I think, has to do with the fact that he is a right-wing leader. And he's got nationalistic ideas as opposed to globalistic ideas. It's true. You know, what comes to my mind is something we said earlier about how when humans are involved with things, the extremes, we allow the extremes to go way out. Uh, before they we pull back, you know, towards the center, and it's just kind of like this rubber band back and forth, you know, from side to side. It, and I wonder, in our lifetimes, you know, if you consider how progressive and how liberal um, things have become in the in the in the culture in this society, it's really been night and day. It started, I don't know when it started, but I remember uh, big changes when we were kids. Things like um, self esteem, for instance. Uh, that was a whole new idea and uh, everybody gets a trophy and you could start to see how even when we were kids the the society was changing in these subtle ways that we couldn't have known then but we can see now how they progressed into all this craziness Mm -hmm. and then you bring up Putin being kind of a conservative figure and so my question is it's clear to me that we've we have taken the the extreme left movement very far off the rocker far in some cases now we have to start coming back the other direction and it's only it's an eventuality it's going to happen and seeing the rise of a conservative russia if you want to call it that or a conservative movement in russia that the fear is that as we come back towards the middle we're going to want to go to the extremes we're going to we're going to want to follow that direction even to the extreme on the right and that's fascism, and that's what people yeah. are afraid of with Trump and Putin um, specifically. I don't, I don't know why just those two, but that's those are the ones they're concerned about. Yeah. Um, so I just wonder what that means for the for the the pull in the other direction. How I've, far are we going to go? I've been saying that for a while, uh, especially when Trump was in office and everyone was fucking freaking out about Trump being a Nazi. If you keep doing this kind of stuff, like this don't say gay bill freaking the fuck out because you can't teach a fucking kindergartner about sexuality. If you keep doing this kind of stuff, eventually you're going to get what you were pretending Trump was. Oh, absolutely. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people who now or 10 years ago or today, or maybe even five years from now who would be like, that's terrible. When that happens, they're not going to say that's terrible. They're going to be like, "We need this. I, yeah, We've gone way too far to the other side." What, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen um, in 2024? What, I think when Trump runs again, 
Do you think that the left are going to double down and be even more, um, yeah. you know, Trump's a racist, he's yeah. a sexist, he's the That's antichrist? Their card. You think they're going to go right back to it? You think they're going to double down and be even worse than they were last oh, time? Yeah. See, I th- you know what worries me about that is that the leader that you're <coughs> that you're talking about that we're forcing on us by going too far to the left. I don't think that's Trump. I don't think that's I don't think that's the the leader that we're that we're forcing on ourselves to pull us back in the other direction, the one that we should be worried about. I think it's going to be more subtle than that. It's going to be somebody that will come after Trump um, that people are going to generally support. That's the one we're going to be we, we're going to have to be worried about. Yep. You know. Somebody like Obama uh, had a lot more potential to damage the country in irreversible ways because he was so likable, because yeah. he was so liked. He wasn't a clown. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's true, too. And Trump, um, you know, say what you will about, oh, fuck, I'm getting a cramp. Um, <laughs> getting a Charlie horse right here on the show. It, it went away, though. But, uh you know, he's a billionaire, so obviously he's he's not stupid. But I also don't think that Trump is like a shrewd political thinker. You know, I think that he's just no. kind of a no. a bull in a china shop, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, you think about some of his advisors like Steve Bannon. I think that Steve Bannon is a very shrewd political thinker um, and much more legitimately right-wing than Trump is. And I'm not trying to say that Steve Bannon is, is Hitler. I mean, a lot of people say that. I don't think that's the case, but I think somebody like that I think you're right. We'll be coming down the pipe eventually. Mm. Mm. I was just thinking when you said that, I was just thinking, we, <laughs> I don't even want to say it. <laughs> I was just thinking everybody has a little Hitler or the potential <laughs> for a little Hitler in them, you know? And that's one of the things that Jordan Peterson always said when he talked about what happened in the second world war and afterwards, it's like what what people fail to realize is how if they were in that situation, they would have been they would have been on the wrong side of history. If the you were if you were a citizen in Germany during the Second World War, you would have been a Nazi. Um, if you were a, a, a soldier, uh, you know, working at a at a prison facility in the Second World War, you would have been putting those Jews in the in the gas chambers. And if you think you wouldn't, you're lying to yourself. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe you're like one of the one in a fucking million who wouldn't do it. But you probably would. You would because if you didn't, you would have been in the gas chamber yourself. Yep. And you know, as much as you might have disliked it, you would have been, you would have done it. Yeah. You know, and that that's that integration thing we were talking about earlier when we we're talking about sex. Um, and you know, uh, by the way, I, I don't feel like we we hit that as thoroughly as we should have because I I wanted to say that you should be able to have you know, romantic, uh, you know, um, mind blowy, romantic connection, sex with your wife, but you should also be able to have hair pulling, you know, toe curling, you know, animal noise sex with your wife as well. And, and there, there's an integration of psychological forces that's required to be able to do that. If you're holding your wife up on a pedestal and not giving her the animal sex, uh, because you because because you can't blend those two worlds without losing control. That's the idea. You should be able to harness that. And hey, you know what? Wh- whisper, whisper. Your wife wants the animal sex from time to time, bro. She wants it. You're gonna you're gonna not give that to her because you're t- you're too nice of a guy. You're trying to preserve her. You know, pristine. Like what the fuck are you doing, man? Pull her hair a little. 
Do you think that people did want that back in the day, though? Yes. Yeah. Yes, dude. Like, can you imagine like those, uh, like those sexual rituals that that you know again, it's probably painted in like a like a just a, a, a poetic and a like a like a mythological light, but like those pagan religious ceremonies where there was sex going on, sex with like a uh, like a priestess, you know, they would do that ritual sex. It happened in Greece and Rome, but yeah. it happened in pe- pagan religions too. Do you think that was like sweet romantic sex? Do you think that was symbolic, you know, uh, sex? No, man, that was animal, drug, drug-riddled, drug you know, alcohol-riddled um, Dionysian passion. That's what that was. That was that was becoming possessed by the spirit of of eros, you know, of lust. Yeah, you know. I, to bring this full circle, I think uh, a lot of that kind of sex was happening with kids oh, back in God. in Greece. Damn, man. Yeah, no, I know it's fucked up. Um, this that brings me back to Game of Thrones again. You know, Lord Varys, the spider, the bald dude, the eunuch. Yeah. Uh, he taught. He tells the story of how he became a eunuch. He was an actor. He was a like a in like a, a theater company over in the other continent, Essos. Yep. And he was traveling around, do, you know, doing plays. And eventually, this guy made the person who owned Varys at the time an offer that the guy just couldn't turn down. And the guy used. He thought Varys thought that the guy was taking. He you know, was buying him so that he could have sex with him. You know. Yeah. But what he did was he castrated him and, like, ritualistically burned his, you know, penis and testicles. And that, like, some... When he did that, he called some deity or something and a voice came out of the fire and talked to the guy when he did that. Wow. Um, And I, I just bet you a lot of that kind of shit was going on back in the day, you know? Yeah, it's weird, man. There's all kinds of weird things popping in my head. It's like, um, I'm uncomfortable talking about them, actually. So there's like an innocence. Well, first of all, I want to say something before I forget. Um, it goes back to that DMT vision that we talked about earlier with the with the oral sex and the taking in you know, the seed into your body and all that sort of thing. Uh, first of all, there, there's something about coaxing it out, by the way, right? You know, if you ask a woman if a blowjob is an easy thing to do, you know, most most women are going to say, you know, there's some work involved. It's not entirely, it's not always entirely pleasant, and, and all, you know, there's some work involved, just like anything. Um, so you have to coax the seed out. You know, you have to, you have to, gotta work for you it. You have to work for it. You know, and then there's something interesting about it. But going back to what you said about the ancient Greeks, I'm going to bring this connection in. One of the things I've heard that was supposedly the reason why adult Greek men would have these sexual relationships with the, the adolescent Greek men was because they believed that taking the seed of the of the mature man would be like passing his strength and uh, char- qualities and characteristics on to the next generation. And that's really fucked up and gross. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. That That's one of the reasons that they did that. Yeah, and there are parallels like in Africa. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Oh yeah, yeah where yeah. like the women, like the matriarch when she dies, like the grandmother when she dies, the women will take her uterus and ovaries and things out of her body, and they'll ritually eat them. Yeah, and all of the young women will eat the reproductive parts of the matriarch to pass along the fertility to the next generation. It's not like it's an unheard of thing. It's weird and gross, and for modern audiences, it's. You know, it's cringy. 
Got less of a problem with that than with the semen. Yeah. Well, just <laughs> just with kids, you know, like with kids, yeah. it's like a grown up who lived their life and then they died, and you like consume part of them to bring it into you. Like, yeah, it's is it gross? Sure, it's gross, but I just don't have the same moral problem with it that I do with. Isn't that isn't that interesting that we did that physically eating? You know, like, and I say we, but this still happens in these tribes in Africa. But if you go back in time, this was a relative, this was not an uncommon sort of thing that would happen ritually. But we would do it ritually where we would actually eat the body of our, first of all, you're eating human flesh, which is weird, yeah. but you're eating the body of somebody you know. You know, imagine how weird that is just to our, to our perception. Uh, but culturally, in their world, perfectly normal. Yeah. But isn't it weird that we would, we would once have done it? And then we changed it into a symbol. So rather than eating flesh and blood, now we eat a cracker and wine. And a, and wine yeah. You know, but it's again a parallel. Yeah. So I wonder if this idea of passing part of myself to to to, uh, to my wife, I guess she's the only person doing that that to me. So passing part of myself to her like that. If that's part of the symbolism that I was missing earlier, like the way we just described the ancient Greeks doing it, it's fucking weird, man. This is a weird conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely weird. I don't know. I don't know, man. I, I don't know if I want it to mean something about the oneness from the psychedelic experience because I focus on it so much. It also makes me think if that oneness idea is like what Carl Jung was, what Carl Jung's spirits were warning him against. It's like that's the pinnacle. That's the highest thing that God is. And if I focus on that too much, I'm missing, you know, I'm missing the uh, the other half. I'm missing yeah. the the leaves for the trees. What is it called? What's the expression? Forest for the, the forest trees. for the trees. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. What a weird conversation. Um, oh, do, you have, do you have a topic? Because we're, we're getting closer. I have two things I want to touch on. Well, I think we talked about everything that I had. Let me just check my notes here. But you can you can go. I want to tell you about a, a beverage that I that I found. It's called psychedelic water. Oh yeah. <laughs> so it intrigued me. Found it on Amazon. So I figured it couldn't actually be psychedelic. But I ordered it, and uh, you know, it's like a lot of these new energy drinks are coming about. Like the one I'm drink, the one I've been drinking, the Celsius. Um, shout out to Costco. Uh, there's all these new energy drinks, and now they're starting to advertise these as like, um, like. A substitute for alcohol. So if you you have a party, people come over to the house, they're all drinking beer, you're trying to like watch your figure or you don't want to get, you, you have to drive or something. So you can drink a drink that will make you feel loose. It'll make you feel something, but it won't make, it won't make you fucked up. Okay. Introduce psychedelic water. That's what this is supposed to be. And there's, there's others, right? My, my wife just tried one called Ken, K-I-N. Yeah. And it's like it's got L-theanine in it, and a bunch of things that make you feel relaxed, and it's supposed to help you sleep or feel relaxed. Psychedelic water is something like that, but it's made of two ingredients, neither of which I ever heard of. One of them is called kava kava. It's a root that grows in like Polynesia, so it's like Hawaii and like Samoa places like that, and it is psychedelic. Oh, and then there was a, a something else called. Uh, I can't remember the other one, but it's a shrub from Africa that's also mildly psychedelic. And there are apparently like alkaloids and stuff in these plants that um, the people would make into a tea and they would drink or something like a, like a, uh, they would make into a drink and they yeah. would drink it. And it does have apparently mild psychophysical reactions. 
So I was like, all right, I'll, uh, you color me intrigued, you know? So I buy them, um, and they're not cheap. Yeah. And I drank one. And it said, like, wait 15 minutes, see how you feel. So I drank one, and I waited 15 minutes. And I felt a little something, yeah. you know? Like, every time I would move my head a little bit, it seemed like it took us a little, like, an extra half a second for the world to catch up with me. I felt a little bit affected by it. I'm not going to lie. But then I wondered if it was, like, placebo. Yeah. So I drank another one. So I drank two, like, back-to-back real quick. And uh, I didn't experience any difference. So, like, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe one is enough. Maybe it was placebo. Um, But it was interesting. Uh, I don't know that I would buy them again. I might. Yeah. But I never heard of either of those, Kava Kava and some other thing. You ever heard of I have heard of Kava Kava, Yeah. yeah. You can get little, like... Like mints or pills that have the kava kava in them and take yeah. them. I saw, I've seen. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's hard for me to buy into the validity of that kind of stuff because you know this. I just chemicals and stuff just it takes a lot for it to affect me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. certain things it doesn't. Certain things it's just the normal amount and I'm I'm good. But other things. Like I'll I'll do I'll do kratom uh, uh, more of it than anybody you've ever known and not feel anything. Right <laughs> yeah, now. for sure. Uh, like I'll drink and I could drink I could drink probably five energy drinks and then go to bed. That's amazing. I just don't. It doesn't do anything for me like that. Well, I know I've seen you eat a lot a lot of edibles and not not feel a thing. Yeah. And although there was one time one I time. did, <laughs> was one time I did see you affected by it. That was pretty funny. But I think that was the day you ate like four or I you ate one of them and I ate like four or five of them. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I was I was gone that time. Yeah, bro. yeah, you did good. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. All right, buddy. Well, that brings me to something I wanted to show you. So I. I told you I've been reading that book, Modes of Sentience, and the author, uh, Dr. Shersted Hughes, um, he he posted a link on Twitter to a scientific article on psychedelics. I didn't read the article. I haven't got around to it yet. Um, but apparently they have a, some trip reports accounts that were used in the study. And one of them came from a guy named Shane Moss, who I've heard of, I've uh, seen before. I think he's a comedian. I think. I'm oh, not... yeah, I do know who he is now that you mentioned yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I might have seen him on Rogan, but I can't exactly remember. But he, I think he's been on Rogan. But he's, he's, a psych- he's a psychedelic guy, Yeah, you know? So apparently, one of the trip reports in this study came from Shane Moss. Okay. <laughs> and he did a YouTube video where he describes it. So is it animated? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I think I've. Seen oh, you've it. seen it. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. All, right, all right. Well, I want to play it for you because there's just the last thing that no, comes know. up in this. It's been I, a long time, so I'll be happy to see oh, it again. Good. Good. I'm curious. I think I heard about this guy on Ari Shafir's podcast. That, well, yeah, that, that, that would sound right. Yeah. Psychonaut so, kind of so guy. Procaster. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. We're connected. All right. Let's see if I can do this for you. Turn up the volume. And then I got sucked into that purple fabric, and then I was in this other dimension. Hi, my name is Shane Moss, and this is the craziest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. When I first started smoking DMT, I was going to these different dimensions and seeing these different beings, and I kind of thought it was all in my head. It doesn't look like that when you're in the experience, but uh, it's how I 
rationalized it to myself afterwards. I would be talking with these beings that were seemingly giving me all of this information that I could never remember. And I was like, well, you need to show me something to prove that you're outside of my head. About the 20th time that I smoked DMT, I was all of a sudden in this 50s kitchen. There was a, a boy sat down in the kitchen. It was like he was in trouble or something and his father wanted to tell him something, but he didn't know how. His father came up and he just went like this. The kitchen just collapsed just waved his and hand. constructed into a movie set. And it was revealed to the boy that I think was me that he'd been living on a movie set his entire life. And then he could see the entire universe. He's taking all of this in. And then the universe just ripped open. And then there was this purple fabric behind it. And then I got sucked into that purple fabric. And then I was in this other dimension. And I was sitting there working with this guy in this other dimension that I think was me. And we had some sort of job, which is a real bummer. We were trying to figure out how to keep this portal open or this gateway open or something. We got done with work that day and there was a carnival. And there's a Ferris wheel and there's some guy playing a piano. And then this dancing purple gypsy woman comes out and it's like I've known her for lifetimes. Like I've spent thousands of lifetimes with this woman and it's just been a while since I've seen her and we saw each other. And right away I was like, oh my God, it's so good to see you. And we caught up for a while. And then uh, when it was the DMT was wearing off, she told me that everything was just going to be okay and that all of this just keeps on repeating itself over and over again, so not to worry about it too much. We got sad that we were going to have to split up and I was going away again. And so to cheer me up, she just spun around and exploded into fractals that turned into like bats and different creatures that became everything in the universe. And then it became me and I was everything. And then it got sucked back out and it was just her spinning around again. She's like, see ya. And I got out of it and I was like, okay, well, that was weird but that's DMT for you. There's always... <laughs> Pause it for just a second. So we're a little bit more than halfway through. You think the story's done. It's not done. There's a l little bit at the end that's like the most intriguing part of this, which I'm curious about. Um, what's your take on this so far? The way he's described DMT, the DMT trip. I just think it's interesting. Excuse me. Uh, I just think it's interesting how so many people who take these psychedelic substances say the same things. You know, people it, who don't know each other at all, have never met, lived in completely different times of the world with different zeitgeists like you were talking about. Completely fucking different. Yeah. Couldn't be more different. And they all say the same things about everything is one and yep. it's weird. That man. is that is interesting. Very weird. Yeah. Um, so the way he described the like... Uh, being in an old diner and the walls falling down and talking to his dad and seeing people he's describing like what to me sounds like a dream yeah uh, with really clear distinct images that are reflective of the reality that we're familiar with yeah um, that I have never had that experience yeah that's one thing that I was thinking too when he started describing it is like how does this guy have so much detail from this because it's gone you know like you have the experience and you sober up and it's gone a lot of the time maybe he's just you know, is more practiced at remembering his dreams. Maybe he yeah. writes it down yeah, immediately. Um, 
But even but, but even the images themselves, it's like what you see in in the DMT experience. What I, what I've seen is not people and houses. It's things that you've never seen before. None of it is familiar. And he, yeah. what he's describing is like familiar things. And that to me that seems strange. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it, again, he's done it a, a lot. So maybe you get better at it. You know, maybe uh, that seems likely. Maybe you get better at it. Yeah. Um, did you notice? That when he said, I don't know if I should say this now or save it to the end. Um, he said that when the DMT experience started really ramping up, the universe tore open. Yeah. And behind the universe, in, in, in the image that was like the image of space, like black of space, it rips open and behind it is a, is per, is a purple place. And uh, he, he goes, gets sucked into the purple place. And there he meets a purple woman. So I don't know if you picked up on that. Yeah. So what happens is, Kyle, Kyle and I have talked about this many times. It's like when you when you have a perception, you know that your perception is a model, a psychological model in your brain. Um, it's not really what's what's there. Like when you look out and you see a Kyle sitting across from you, that's not what Kyle is. It's just what it's just a symbol of what he you know uh, something I can work with. But it's not the full it's not the full you you know. Yep. It's, and it's that way with everything. So objective reality is basically something we don't really know anything about. And it's whatever is behind the veil of perception. And that's what he sh seems to be showing. The universe gets ripped open, you know? And so that's the veil of perception. And behind the universe is the real stuff. And for him, that's this purple place. Yeah. And he gets sucked into the purple place. And there he meets a purple woman who he says he's known for a thousand lifetimes. It's like the most familiar person to him. It's like he's he's re been reunited with this person that is the most familiar thing. That's what he's experienced. And I can't help but think that she is an embodiment because she's a purple woman. She's an embodiment of the purple the purple place that exists behind reality. Yeah. You know, she's she's that thing become a become a a, a figure that he can interact with. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And it also sounds a lot like the Carl Jung stuff we were talking about earlier where Carl Jung, ha uh, he has a mental image that gets inhabited by a spirit. And that's what's happened here, yeah, seemingly. That's true. The spirit behind reality is now inhabiting this purple woman, and he's known her for a thousand lifetimes, he says. So it's like the power behind reality comes, to, comes face to face with itself, with Shane Moss. And... He recognizes her because it's the deepest part of himself. And he knows he, he's known her for lifetimes because all of the human beings who have ever existed have been this thing that he's talking to. That's what comes through to me. It's amazing. Yeah. But here's here's where it's going to get good. Do you have anything to add before we I finish? I just wonder what yeah. the significance of purple is, you know? Like, I'm sure that's like a Shane Moss thing, you know? But might, I just wonder what... It might be, but you know what comes to my mind? What? It's the color of royalty. royalty. Yeah. Yeah. And we call God the King of Kings, you know. So uh, the purple woman, you know, she's wearing the purple robes of royalty. That kind of thing comes to mind. Yeah. True. Just a thought. <laughs> All right, here we go. There's weird stuff like that happening, and you're interacting with these strange beings. The next night, I went and I gave DMT to a friend for his first time. He'd never had DMT, and I didn't want to 
ruin anything by sharing anything about the experience with them. I wanted to go in there fresh. So I told him, here's this bowl, just smoke it for as long as you can. So he starts smoking this bowl and he's coughing a lot. I can't tell how many hits he's getting. And I'm, I'm encouraging to keep going and now he's having like eight, 10 hits is more than what I expected him to do. <laughs> and he sits back and he just goes, I had too much, I had too much. <laughs> All right, I just want to stop it there for a second. I want to point out that what Shane just described is actually exactly what happened with Kyle and I. Yeah, for sure. So when I... I when, didn't say I've had too much, but <laughs> I had had too much. Yeah. So I, I wanted you to have that experience because it was so completely mind-blowing, but I didn't want to spoil it or color it for you, so I didn't tell you anything other than to take as much as you can. Yeah. And you did, and my eyes got so big because I was like... I'm glad I didn't That's see that. That's way more. That was way more than I wanted. That I would have expected. Um, but I couldn't say a word because I didn't want to freak you out. So I just didn't say anything. Yeah. And and then of course, if you you guys remember this story, we told it before. Kyle then asks me to leave. I have to leave the room while yeah. while he goes into this space. But let's let's hear how his buddy it describes it here. I had too much. So it's a minute and a half in, and he's still going. I've had too much, and I'm thinking. He might have had too much. <laughs> then finally, he sits back, this smile comes on his face, and he is just like, oh, they love you here. And I was like, yeah, there's like a real sense of, of like love or going home or belonging or something. And he's like, no, they love you, Shane. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, there's this purple woman in here that says that she knows you really well and she just wants you to know that she cares about you. I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm in this carnival and there's this Ferris wheel and this guy playing a piano and there's this purple dancing gypsy woman that says that she knows you. I didn't talk for about 10 minutes and then he got out of the experience and I asked him about it and he said that these little elf, mechanical elf things scattered and they were scared. He was scared of them. They were scared of him. When he heard my voice, they all started peeking out and they're like, Is that Shane? And he was like, Oh, you guys know Shane? <laughs> and they were like, Oh yeah, he comes in here all the time. And that's when this purple woman came out and said that she had a message for me. I have no explanation for it. I've seen that purple woman at least five or six times since that. We have this strange relationship. She gets jealous of my girlfriend sometimes. Uh, and so I think I'm dating a woman in a different dimension. All right, well, that's basically the story. So. I think you can kind of see where I'm getting at. At the end of that story, when his buddy sees the same purple woman, not only does he see her, but but they're talking about Shane. Yeah. I mean, this is, I, I think of a psychedelic experience to be a very intimate and personal experience. It, it, to me, it always seems like you're unconscious or subconscious becoming alive in a way that they that they generally aren't and you'd come to know yourself or experience yourself in a way that you hadn't before and it's always seemed to be yourself that you're experiencing um, which is why I interpret the purple woman the way I do and then his buddy sees the exact same thing mm -hmm. what do you think of that? It's weird. I mean there's a lot of kind of reports of that though. May that's maybe very specific which is weird but you know there's lots of... Um Lots of people who say that they see a woman, you know, um, not always purple, sometimes green, sometimes, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, Sam, who was on the podcast, he he says that he always sees this this elderly Native American woman, yeah. and she's always sitting at the edge of the bed or, you know, talking to him. See that kind of thing. Like, I wonder how much, even though Shane didn't, you know, he tried to let that guy go into it without influencing him. I wonder how much the guy knew, you know, uh, like Shane is a, a guy who trips a lot. You know, he yeah. probably knew that. Um, and yeah. the same with Sam. It's like we have these preconceived notions on our brains of Indian, you know, Native Americans, Indians being like spiritual people. So is right. that why he's seeing it? So I think yes and no. I think that it's possible that Shane's purple woman is Sam's Native American woman. Yeah. And that Shane's purple woman looks purple and like a, like a gypsy for some particular reason to do with Shane's uh, history. It looks like a Native American probably to Sam for the same reason you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Because Sam knows that there's a connection between ayahuasca and Native American spirituality. So when he has that experience, it takes the form of Native American spirituality. Um but maybe the purple woman is this is underlying that's that costume that Sam sees as a Native American. Maybe that spirit that's inhabiting the purple woman and the Native American woman are the same. Yeah. And and the image that 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 you see is connected. That's about you. It's about you. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's interesting. That's crazy though. That is like a. I can't even imagine. You know, like if. Uh, Somebody else was tripping, and they're like, "Man, they love you here." <laughs> they're, they're talking about me. That's weird. That is weird. Um, I literally didn't get to anything I had to talk about today, but it was a super fun conversation, man. Yeah, we're at two hours, so well, we got more stuff to talk about next week. Yep, it'll be easier to prepare for next week. So we did uh, psychedelics, we did sex, we did weird, weird stuff. What else did we do today? Weird, weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yep, we did uh, Ancient Egyptian Pharaohs, Graham Hancock. This was a good talk, man. It was a good one. All right, you guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Peace. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.